When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Do you like what you're hearing right now? Then be sure to check out VOC Nation. Whether it's on vocnation.com or your favorite podcast provider, VOC Nation offers the greatest in live and on-demand content, great interviews, and incredible insight from those who have lived the business. Seven days a week, vocnation.com. And don't forget to check us out on Twitter at vocnation. Welcome to another edition of Bumps and Thumps, the talk of wrestling. I'm Brian Ferguson. My guest today, frequent flyer, good friend of mine, love him to death, pro wrestling historian, Mr. George Shire. George, my friend, thank you for coming back on and wearing the T-shirt. Hey, I am part of the team, tag team. You are. That's right. Ferguson and Shire. That's right. (laughs) Oh, well. In our minds all. Yeah. So, George, I asked you to come on today because I wanted to talk to you about the National Wrestling Alliance, the prominent organization of up until really from the late 40s until the early 80s was the, the, the force to be reckoned with, really. In, in the in the wrestling world and i wanted to talk to you about if we could today kind of the 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 background and and some of the drama that that occurred uh first off let's just talk a little bit about the background of it what tell us a little bit if you would please george about how this all started in in uh, the national wrestling alliance and some of the turmoil that kind of came with it in the beginning well you know it's kind of weird brian because if you go back to the 30s and in through the 40s there were wrestling world champions all over the place we didn't have territories per se in those days but promoters would run cards in various parts of the country and lo and behold you know they had a world champion on their card and there were legit wrestlers that had claimed the world title back in the 20s, 30s, into the early 40s. And, you know, you get the names like Joe Stecker and Frank Gotch and George Hackenschmidt and Jim Londos. All of these guys were legit, and they did indeed hold some form of whatever the title was at the time in the various promotions. But World War II, when that came along, you know, that upset the world everywhere. I mean, a world, a world war. And wrestling was one of the things that really was uh, affected by it. Right before the war, um, there was an organization called, believe it or not, it, it had the initials NWA. It was the National Wrestling Association. Uh. Not alliance, association. And it was made up at that point in time by a, a uh, group of promoters, um, Harry Landry, I think it pro- he pronounces it. Uh, Tom Pack was part of this, and he eventually was one of the St. Louis, Missouri promoters in the early years. And uh, some guy named Ed White, not related to any of the later whites in wrestling down the road. So I think those were the primary guys, and they were in charge of the National Wrestling Alliance. Their uh, first recognized champion was a guy named Everett Marshall and he lost it to Luthez 
in uh, February of 39, 1939. Okay. And then Lou held it for a while, and he, he lost it to whipper Billy Watson, who was a huge megastar in Canada. Very good worker, very good wrestler. And then uh, later on, as the title progressed, uh, Lou also won it from Wild Bill Longson, who was a great wrestler, amateur background, ended up working in the St. Louis Wrestling Club office after his retirement and as an official, ring official and everything. So if you look at that part of it right there, and that would have been between 1939 and 1948, those three changes that I mentioned. And um, Luthez was champion three times. So... 1948 comes along, World War II is over, and the, the real problem was is that there was always this, who is the real world champion? We should have one world champion. I mean, believe it or not, they actually thought about this back in the late 40s. Yeah. So this group of promoters get together, and in the beginning, at this, there, there's it's always talked about this alleged meeting in, in uh, Iowa. They had uh, Sam Muchnick, of course. He was the the glue. We had Al Haft. We had uh, a guy named Harry Light, Pinky George, um, Tony Stecker from Minneapolis, who was the promoter here at the time. Um, Wally Carbo came with him. Wally Carbo at the time was the, uh, the matchmaker and referee for Tony. And um, Orville Brown was part of it. They get together, they have this meeting. They come up with the idea that, you know, if we could get all the promoters to agree on an annual basis, we'll have an annual meeting, and we nominate or elect, choose a wrestler to represent what then became the National Wrestling Alliance. And... Okay. The, the first objective was is that they were going to declare a champion, but they were going to have an elimination match to make it legit. <laughs> so Luthez had some National Wrestling Association recognition. Orville Brown was the guy in the room that they felt and with his credentials. And I would just invite people, you know, if you want to know about when I mentioned some of these names, you can Google them. Just don't do it on Wikipedia. And you'll find some <laughs> you'll find some decent information about Orville Brown, etc. Yeah. Um, so they were going to have this elimination match, and before the match could take place, <clears throat> you know, sometimes the words "program subject to change" it happens in behind the scenes in real life, and it's not part of the program that they changed it. Yeah. So they had a match that was going to be set between Fez and Orville Brown. Well, sadly, Orville Brown was involved in a very serious car accident. It ended his career, and the match never took place. So due to his National Wrestling Association recognition, Luthez technically became the first National Wrestling Alliance world champion, and that would have been championship number one. Okay. Now, as you... As you kind of look through the years, Fez just became the, the poster boy for the NWA. He was a real wrestler. You didn't seriously want to mess with Luthez in the ring. You yeah. followed the script with him. And when I say script, I'm just talking you went into the ring and you didn't yeah. you know, say, I'm going to see how good Fez is because Fez is going to send you home with some pain. <laughs> and, and that was just legit and he was the guy yeah. that they could trust yeah and lou was always one of the guys that if if he was going to drop the title his only insistence most of his career was he didn't want to lose it to what he referred to as a performer and okay. a performer to him was a guy that had the glitz and the, the blonde hair and the, the strutting and robes and gimmick, whatever it was, and really didn't have the technical shoot hooker wrestling ability. And that made sense. So yeah. Luthez being the poster boy, uh, Brian, 
he represented the NWA with the suit and tie. He felt that if you're a world champion, you go out in the town or you wherever you're seen, you're, you look like a professional and you, you carry yourself well. So Blue had had the title for, uh, oh boy, what did we say, 48, he gets it. And he, he went on and it's about 1955. They have a little bump in the road out in California, uh, San Francisco. Leo Namalini. Great football player, NFL football, yeah. Yeah. and tremendous professional wrestler from the University of Minnesota. Minnesota fans will remember him as a great friend of Vern Gagne. Yeah. Uh, Leo was, and he was huge. Well, he was over big in, in San Francisco, and they had a match with him against Luthez, and Lou got disqualified in it. And all of a sudden, the NWA, and of course, this would have been the planned finish anyway. But yeah. the NWA says, oh, we're not going to – the title can't change hands. We're not going to recognize this. Well, the San Francisco promoters booked Leo Namalini as NWA champion. And he was defending the title out there. Wow. With, strangely enough, the blessings of the NWA. They didn't oppose it. Luthez didn't say anything because it kind of – lessened his schedule a little bit as Namalini was going traveling a little bit and defending. So they kind of had a dual, dual championship. They ended up having a rematch down the road. Lou won. That was forgotten. But if you look in a lot of NWA, uh, if you go to a website, look at some lineage, sometimes Leo's left out of the picture because officially he wasn't recognized, but yeah. most historians have put him in there and said, you know what? You defended the title. You were champ. And yeah. that's the way that went. When we got okay. to about 1956, mm -hmm. I want to say around November, uh, without having dates in front of me here, November right. of 56, Lou had tired a little bit. He wanted a rest. That's the way it went with these guys. I mean, he was traveling all over the country. And we should tell fans that in the sense of this being a real world title, the NWA alliance was never a territory or a promotion. It was a title. It okay. was a, a title that was represented where, and in most of the year, Sam Muchnick was the guy in charge. And he would send the champion out to all these various promotional territories that claimed to be under the NWA umbrella, but there wasn't yeah. a, there wasn't really a, a territory of NWA. So Sam would send them out top challengers from those territories, whether it be a babyface or a heel, they would battle against the NWA champion. That was their formula. So right. in 1956, around November, Lou got a little bit tired of it for a while, and he had went to Sam and then the committee. And he said, you know, I need to take a break for a little bit. I'd like some time off. But again, he chose his successor. He, he always had the guy in mind. And he said, I'll agree to lose it to Billy Watson. And, you know, that was interesting because if you remember when I started out, I said that Billy Watson was one of the guys that Lou had won the association title from. So they mm -hmm. were friends. Well, Billy Watson had it for a short time and, and uh, Lou ended up getting it back. I mean, that just was natural a few months later. And uh, Lou had it until, uh, boy, what year? 50, 57 in June. That's when we had the, this was the biggest mess of them all. They had a match, Edouard Carpentier and Luthez in, in June of uh, 57 in Chicago. Lou had hurt his back, the story goes, in the first fall of the match. Mm -hmm. So technically, Carpentier left the ring as champion because he had, had won the only fall. Now, the interesting part here is that Eddie, uh, I got to get his name, Eddie Quinn from Montreal was kind of in charge of Carpentier, his bookings and that, you know, Mm -hmm. giving him to different promoters. And he yeah. recognized Carpentier as champion from that. And the Omaha promotion at the time 
recognize Carpentier as the champion from that Chicago match. Now, in the meantime, Luthes did take a little bit of time away from the ring from this alleged, and it may have been real, I don't know, back injury, but he took a little yeah. time off. And then he was defending the title, but Carpentier was also defending the NWA title. And what happened was, is the NWA, Sam Muchnick, actually had, Carpentier had their blessing. You you just, you kind of took the weight off of us, but they never personally recognized Carpentier as NWA champion. But if you flash forward a year, and by the way, before that, Carpentier and Thez did have a rematch. Thez again regained the title officially <laughs> or squelched Carpentier's claims. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. In the meantime, a year ahead, Omaha was still recognizing Carpentier as just world champion. Well, lo and behold, that guy from Minneapolis named Vern Gagne, he has his foot in the door in Omaha. And he comes in there and they arrange that Vern Gagne is going to beat Carpentier in 1958. And Vern was recognized as world champion. No NWA in front of it. Obviously, the AWA wasn't even a thought yet. However, mm -hmm. there are some websites out there that will say it was AWA. Folks, they're wrong. Okay. They're wrong. But he was world champion. Now, the interesting thing about that was that while Vern was holding this world title in Omaha and surrounding cities, you know, whatever Omaha consisted of, um, he would wear into the ring the same belt that he wore as the United States champion, which was okay. the NWA United States Heavyweight Championship. Right. Because Vern did have that recognition. So he'd come into Minneapolis as U.S. champion and have the same belt as he did as the world champion. And the belt that that one is, folks, is if you look at the probably the most famous picture of Vern Gagne, he's got his hands on his hips and he's got that small little belt. That's Vern's favorite picture, but that's the same belt they used. And then later on, there was a different U.S. belt uh, that had flags on the on the buckle. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that other guys had won and lost over the years that were unassociated with the NWA. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where all of that happened. When we got to 1957, uh, Luthez was legitimately just tired. And he, he went to Muchnick. He says, I, I, I need a break. I want to be done. And he, you know, well, who are we going to get to be champ? And that's when uh, Lou was specific after even names they tossed out at him. He said, nope, I want Dick Hutton. They were friends. And Dick Hutton, again, folks, look him up. Amateur great. Definitely the real deal. Mm -hmm. he, was a, he was a guy just like Thez, yeah. where if you wanted to get cute with him, you're going to go home missing some fingers or a broken elbow or whatever <laughs> he's going to do to you. Yeah. So... They went along with him, and the only sad part was is that as good as Dick Hutton was, from a charisma vantage point, he was bland. He mm. wasn't good on the on the interviews, and and like the other AW, or the other NWA champions, he had to go into these cities and either be the baby or be the heel, yeah. and he just for whatever reason. Wherever he went, the promoters weren't happy with the gate. He wasn't yeah. drawing well. Um, that's sad because if I was to name some of the great NWA champions, and I look at just from a wrestler, I like yeah. Dick Hutt. Yeah. So Dick was then, it was kind of quickly put around, and they brought Pat O'Connor into the mix. Who's going to beat Dick? And, and Pat O'Connor got the nod. Mm -hmm. It was... Uh, Another deal where Pat O'Connor was a real wrestler. And we should point out that Pat O'Connor got his start here in the States. He was from New Zealand, mm -hmm. Auckland, New Zealand, legit, legitimately. And he came to the States and he got his early training from Tony Stecker and Vern Gagne. Weirdly <laughs> enough, Vern was instrumental in, in a lot of the Pat O'Connor that we see. 
And uh, so Pat was a good champion for a couple years. Now, that's where I want to, if you look at how I went through this, the title didn't yeah. change off. The NWA yeah. formula, generally when they would get together at their annual meetings and the promoters would get together, and everybody would come in with a, you know, a possible successor or do we want to mm -hmm. stay with the current champ? It was all a vote yeah. system. Yeah. Um, the general consensus was, is when we had a world champ, we wanted him to be champ for at least two to three years. Yeah. Because there were a lot, and, and the champion would make 300 or sometimes more defenses a year. Now you got 365 days in the year. And we're mm -hmm. not talking a travel schedule that just involved, you know, going around your neighborhood. We're talking your you're in Boston this night, you're in San Francisco this night, then you're up in Toronto, then you're down in Houston, Texas. That's the NWA. I mean, it was just all over the board. So yeah. these champions, after probably after the first year, were starting to get weary. They didn't, you know, some of them would tell you, I didn't know what town I woke up in or what town I was in. I just yeah. got on the plane and traveled 300 more dates. So by the time they get to that two or three year mark, most of them were begging, please. Let's get the belt off. Well, when it came to O'Connor, he had had the title for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. And uh, he uh, he had beaten uh, Dick Hutton, as we said. So now it comes to, well, who are we going to put the title on for O'Connor? And Pat was another one that said, you know, I need a break. I, I need a rest. Well, they kind of went against the Luthez rule, and they booked – Buddy Rogers, the nature <laughs> boy, the first nature boy. Yeah. And Buddy, lack of skills not included, was a hell of a draw at the gate. Yeah. He had the gift of gab. He had a way of ticking the fans off. And he was arrogant. And he strutted. And he just was, in, in 1961, the perfect, the perfect uh, heel. Much to Luthez's chagrin, he became champion. But here's what happened with Buddy Rogers. He was being booked out of New York by Vince McMahon Sr. Vince was handling his bookings, mm -hmm. as well as Eddie Quinn up in Canada, again, had a lot of pull for Buddy Rogers. Mm -hmm. And as much as the NWA needed Rogers to defend the title, uh, Sr., Vince was making it tougher and tougher for him to be available. Yeah. And Vince was at this point, along with his partners, Tootsmont and uh, I forget who else was involved, Capital Sports at the time. And they were kind of kind of thinking about their own company out east. And, and Rogers was becoming more and more hard to get. And then uh, Smuchnik went to Luthez again. And Lou was nearing the end of his, I mean, he was not at the end of his career, but he had certainly right. seen it, his better years. Yeah. And he still could draw at the gate. That was the key. You had to have a guy that when you say, Luthez is in town, whoa, buy my ticket. Buddy Rogers had that appeal, but they just were having trouble with him. So mm -hmm. they went with Lou. Muchnick asked Lou to come out of semi-retirement, be the champ. Lou agreed. Because Lou wanted the prestige for the business. He, his goal was always, I want the business to be represented by a wrestler, mm -hmm. not a performer. So the famous story goes where they signed the match between him and Rogers. And Rogers what, had no problem with the match. But uh, he, um, he didn't like the idea of dropping the title to Lou. <laughs> so the famous story out there. And I heard this from Lou personally, and I've heard other wrestlers say it, but Lou told me this at Cauliflower Alley back in about 2001 or two. He went into the, to the lot, to the dressing room before the match was going to take place with Rogers. And, you know, he and Buddy didn't get along that well. Mm -hmm. They could get in the ring and put the show on for the sake of the show, but outside the ring, Lou didn't care for it. Yeah. And he, he, he went right up to Buddy and he said, here's the deal. He said, we're going to go in the ring tonight, and I'm walking out with the belt. That's the program. That's what we want. And 
you can either do it the easy way. In other words, let's make the match good and I win, or we can do it the hard way. And of course, Buddy knew what the hard way would be. Lou was going to make sure that Buddy couldn't move after that match was over. Yeah. If he had to, if he had to not get Buddy to agree to be pinned or submit or whatever the case was going to be. And of course, Buddy did the job and Luthes yeah. became champion. And that takes us into 1963 when the Buddy Rogers era was over. But immediately, that's when the Capital Sports became the Worldwide Wrestling Federation. And they, yeah. they let, they made Buddy Rogers their first WWF champion. He, and he supposedly had heart issues. I've never heard it confirmed. Yeah. But he couldn't wrestle a long match. And he went in and Bruno, the guy they were grooming for a couple years, who was way over on the East Coast. Yeah. And they groomed Bruno and Bruno took care of Buddy Rogers in the famous 17 seconds or whatever it was in May of 63. And Bruno held the title for the next almost eight years. So yeah. we had Luthez as champion and for the next couple of years. As the schedule would be for the NWA, Lewis doing the traveling. And we get to 1966. Lou definitely wants a break. He said, you know, I'm done. I, I'm I'm tired. This was all real stuff. He says, I'm just worn out. Yeah. And he agreed to drop the title to Gene Kaniski. I will tell you that of the champions that followed from Luthez on, uh, starting with Gene. Mm -hmm. I think Gene Kaniski was one of the best NWA champions ever. He carried the, okay. the Luthez tradition. He wore the suit outside the ring. You know, when you saw Gene, that's Gene Kaniski. He's the world champion. Yeah. He carried it with prestige, with prestige. He could wrestle and he could brawl. He had the best of it. Uh, he was way over as a heel. And when he was a heel, man, you hated his guts. And when he was a baby in whatever town, you loved him. And and yeah. that's the guy they wanted. So he had it for uh, 63, won it, or he won it in 66 from Lou. And then uh, had it until 69. When, again, Gene Kadiski said, I've had enough. I, I need a break. He didn't quit wrestling, but he just was the, the travel schedule. And like most yeah. wrestlers that got done with the NWA title, they kind of uh, went to a territory. Gene had bought into some of the uh, Vancouver uh, promotion. Okay. And uh, I think Sander, Sander, I want to say Sander Kovacs was, was a partner of his up there. But, uh, yeah, you got in the promotional end of it. So okay. I'm going to stop right there. And if you have any questions as we went through and throw them out, and then we'll continue on. Yeah, well, I want the uh, Department of Justice in the 50s. Oh, yeah. Uh, they had a pickle, or NWA had a pickle with them about monopolizing and that kind of can you kind of explain that to us, George? Like, how did that all kind of come about? Well, you know, yeah, it was the U.S. Uh, U.S. Justice Department, and there legitimately was an investigation being done on pro wrestling being a monopoly, in the sense that Sam Muchnick and the NWA controlled it, because they sent their champion out. Other promoters, you know, they could have named another world champion somewhere, but. We had a legit, we really did have a legit world champion and they were monopolizing the whole thing. So what really happened was a couple of things. You know, we'd had that little fracture in 1955 with Leo Namalini. We had the little fracture with Carpentier in 1957. By the time we got to 1959, the Justice Department legitimately was investigating them for being a monopoly and we, we already know that there were some promoters out there that were kind of tired because they may not be able to get the champion as often as they wanted to or as they liked. Or, you know, some other promoters were more hoarding the champion, the NWA champion. So Sam Muchnick kind of did the logical thing. 
they agree. Tony Stecker, who was, uh, and actually it was Dennis Stecker at this point. Tony had passed away in 54. Dennis Stecker, his son, had taken over the Minneapolis Boxing and Wrestling Club, which we should point out was the whole territory. When we say Minneapolis, it sounds like we're just talking a locale, but it was wherever they promoted around the Midwest. And uh, Dennis Stecker, now the, the wrestling club was really run by Wally Carver. And Dennis mm -hmm. was getting less and less involved. And they agreed, the NWA agreed that they would, as they said, sell Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. And that's where Vern Gagne came in. Part of the problem, too, was is that we didn't even touch on this. But throughout the 50s, most historians, most wrestlers, most people back then and still today, why didn't the NWA put the title on Vern Gagne? Why, with Luthez always wanting a wrestler to be the champion, he wouldn't have put it on Vern Gagne. He wouldn't have agreed to put it on Vern Gagne. And they had wrestled, but Lou didn't want to put Vern over. Their logic was, or their rationale always came out, Vern is too small. Mm -hmm. Now, if you looked at Luthez back in the day, Luthez, I think, was about 6'3". Yeah. Probably legit. Vern was about 5'11", or 5'10". You know, they yeah. might say he was six foot, but he wasn't. He was just under six foot. But yeah. we don't have to explain about Vern Gagne. He was one of the biggest draws in the 50s yeah. across the nation, not just mm -hmm. in Minneapolis. Whatever yeah. city he went to, Boston, Texas, you know, go down to or Dallas, Fort Worth, Tampa, California, wherever he was, Oklahoma, St. Louis, Vern Gagne, big draw. So why why yeah. Lou wouldn't do that? And uh, so professionally, they just had this rivalry. And Vern was fed up. He, he wanted to be champion. And he legitimately had the credentials, as you and I yeah. both know. Yeah. So uh, Vern and Wally decided, you know, let's – We'll take over Minneapolis. The Stecker family wanted out. Dennis was tired. And they I say the Dennis or the Stecker family because I know he had some family that probably had some shares in the thing, and they just they had no interest in it. So yeah. Vernon Wally bought him out, bought out the Stecker family. At the same time, the NWA, Sam Muchnick, fully agreed, we will give you the Minneapolis Territory. And therefore, with this justice investigation crap going on, and I'm going to tell folks, if you want to read a good a good book and story about that United States Justice Department thing, pick up the uh, NWA book by uh, Hornbaker. What's Tim his Hornbaker. first name? Tim. Uh, Tim, Tim, Tim. Yeah. yeah, I don't know how I forgot that for a second. Tim Hornbaker. Excellent book. And, and in it are the facts. So yep. that'll give you the whole clue. I mean, the book is, you know, this thick. That's a whole program and 10 after it. We can't get that far into it. So, <laughs> so anyway, Vern and Wally took over. And that's when we got into the late, uh, late 1959 when, or very early 60, when, uh, because they had given up Minneapolis and, there were a couple of other little territories that the NWA just said, we won't promote there anymore and put the promoters on their own. That squelched the monopoly thing and life went on. But that's yeah. where Vern then in 60 came about with his, uh, I didn't think we'd get to this, but it's always fun to. Let's do it. I know you're going. Well, the, the it was a fictional story. Pat O'Connor was the recognized NWA world champion in, in uh, May of 1960. And the Minneapolis Wrestling Club put out the edict that we are going to give the NWA and its champion, Pat O'Connor, 90 days to defend to Vern Gagne because we feel Vern Gagne is the rightful Claim it to the title. And uh, they give him 90 days. Well, they followed it through over the next two months. You know, Pat O'Connor dodges, doesn't respond to the call or to the edict to defend. The NWA is ignoring it. You know, and as we get to August, 
They didn't answer the question. The NWA champion was Pat O'Connor, and it is announced that the AWA is formed in August of 60, and Vern Gagne, ladies and gentlemen, is now the first recognized American wrestling, and it was Alliance in the beginning, Lions champion. And so, again, you know, folks out there that are new listening to this, if you go to websites, there are title histories and things out there. Many of them are going to say that Pat O'Connor was the first AWA champion because of this challenge that was going on and because he was recognized as the champion in the Minneapolis Wrestling Club at the time. But it was the NWA title. So mm-hmm. he wasn't, a, you know, websites say that. So that's yeah. where that, and then the uh, Justice Department thing was done and the NWA went on. When we had Gene Kaniski, and I, I had mentioned earlier, what a great, champion he was you know he was another one of those guys that was good he could brawl or he could wrestle he could make his opponent regardless of how skilled he was or wasn't look better than he was and that was one of the things that the nwa sam Muchnick again and the promoters involved in it they always wanted their champion to look like he could get beat to yeah. look like he was defeated, to look like the challenger had him on the ropes, and and he was within an inch of losing the belt. That's the way they promoted the business because then it was good for a rematch down the road. The challenge, you know, the challenger got ripped off. He had him beat, and whatever the story was that they came up with to end it, where the champion walked out the the champion, and Gene was good at that. Um, Gene had held the title from 66 to the, uh, early part of 69. And again, it was the road schedule. Uh, Gene was really one of the busiest champions up to that point because wrestling had really taken off in the sixties. And we were now at that point where we had 20, 25 territories, except for the East coast, which had Bruno and the Midwest that had Vern and or whoever held the title at different times, but had Vern, uh, the NWA champion was all over the place. And again, coast to coast, border to border, you know, and Gene got tired. He wanted to let it go. Well, behind the scenes, Dory Funk Sr. had been lobbying for a long time. Um, I always say his name wrong. Doc, I want to say Scarpolis and folks, I'm probably messed it up, but he was one of the back behind the scenes promoters that wanted uh, Dory Jr. to get the title. And Dory Sr., he actually lobbied real hard for his son. And Dory at the time, uh, in February, January, February of 69, he was what, 20, early 20s? Yeah, I think he was. Yeah, he was in his 20s, I know. He was in his but, early yeah. 20s. They kind of touted him as one of the youngest champs since Lou Thez had first won it back, you know, whatever title he won in the 30s. Mm-hmm. So Dory was, and he was a good wrestler. The one thing fans should know is that if you came out of the Dory Funk senior training camps down there in Amarillo, uh, you know, he put uh, over the years the Funks, Dory senior being primary in the beginning, they put out as many great talented workers in the business as Vern Gagne did for his contribution. And as yeah. Hiro Matsuna Suda and uh, Boris Malenko and Eddie Graham out of Florida did, mm-hmm. you know, and Stu Hart up in Canada, all these guys yeah. that had so many, I mean, literally dozens upon dozens of wrestlers that they put out. And so the funks were no exception. I mean, when you look at later on, you look at the wrestlers that he brought into the business, Bobby Duncombe, Dusty Rhodes, Dick Murdoch, uh, Bruiser Brody, Stan Hansen, Ted DiBiase. And I mean, I could I could yeah. go on, not to, not to mention his sons, Dory Jr. and Terry. And Terry. <clears throat> so uh, he lobbied for Dory Jr. to get the title and he actually put up the money. The NWA used to have the champion put up a $25,000 bond. I don't know if people knew that or not. So any wrestler that we've talked about up to this point, when they became champion, they had to put $25,000 into 
give it to the NWA. And the whole idea, and then they are in charge of the belt as well. Then, But the whole idea was, is that if that wrestler, whoever was the represented champion at the time, decided I'm going to do my own thing or I'm not going to follow the orders, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to lose, well, they would forfeit their 25 grand. Bearing in mind, Brian, you know, 25 grand, that's a lot of money today, but go back yeah. to the 50s and the <laughs> yeah. 60s, 25 grand was a huge chunk of, of pennies. Yeah. So Dory, Dory Sr. put up the money for, for Dory. And Dory was, he was interesting because he was a real wrestler. Again, not, not much of a brawler in those days. He was the real deal. He carried the he carried it well with the suits. Clean cut. I mean, if you look at the earliest pictures of him, he well, he was balding like his yeah. dad. He looked a lot like his dad. He was balding, but he had short cropped hair and, and just clean cut kid from Amarillo. And uh, Dory held the title then from 69 to 73. May of uh, May of seventy three. He won it in February of sixty nine, and held it till May of seventy three. Now there became some controversy behind the scenes there too, because Dory was getting tired of being the champion. He had long reign, um, you know, almost mm -hmm. four years or, or four years running. And so, who are we going to put the title on? Well, Jack Briscoe had been the really the forerunner on everybody's lips. Great wrestler out of Oklahoma, amateur background, real wrestler. Jack could technically go either way, but he had that baby face look, good looking yeah. young kid. And uh, the Funks and the Briscoes, they always had a behind the scenes feud. It was the old Oklahoma, Texas. And, <laughs> and, and that still goes on today in sports. Oklahoma doesn't like Texas and Texas doesn't like Oklahoma in football yeah. or whatever it is, and in wrestling. So even though they wanted Dory to lose to Jack, um, they had actually signed a match. And at the last second, uh, Dory just didn't want to drop it to Jack. And probably Dory Sr. right behind him didn't want it either. Just wasn't going to admit that Texas was better, for whatever that makes sense to him. So anyway, or Oklahoma was better, I mean. Mm -hmm. So anyway... Um, right before that happened, the story comes out that Dory Jr. had been had injured himself in a, a pickup overturn accident on their their ranch. Uh, what, what what all the detail were details were I don't know, uh, yeah. but he was injured his shoulder. He couldn't wrestle, and he did miss some a few dates. But when he got back, there was a match in Kansas City, and so the NWA Sam Wichita came up with an idea. They were going to just get the title off of Dory and they put him in with technically at the time, a relative unknown to the vast majority of the country, Harley race. Harley race. Now, Harley had been a regional wrestler in the AWA in the central States, St. Louis mm -hmm. um, hadn't really traveled to any of the other territories, but in Kansas City, which by this time Harley had bought into the Kansas City promotion, Central State promotion, mm -hmm. with uh, behind the scenes partners Bob Geigel and Pat O'Connor. And uh, they agreed to put the title on Harley as the interim champion. So he took it from Dory. And the whole deal was is that within two months, they were going to sign this match with Jack Briscoe. It was set in Houston, Texas. Um, I think it was around July 24th or something like that of, of mm. in Houston. And Harley would drop the title to Jack. But here was here was the surprising thing. Muchnik and some of the other representatives of the NWA, they were surprised because when Harley went into Tampa, when he went into St. Louis, obviously, when he went down to Texas, and he even, he even went up to the Pacific Northwest for that two-month period. Mm -hmm. He drew so well. The fans bought into his shtick. And in those yeah. days, he was being billed as handsome Harley race. <laughs> so he was still doing a little bit of the arrogant thing. But the one thing you got to remember with Harley race is he wasn't a real wrestler. But if you were dumb enough to mess with Harley race, 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's just say you were dumb. Because yeah. Harley was just, he was, and to this day, most people will say some of the toughest people in the business were Harley Race, modern day Haku comes into the yep. picture. And there were some others that he just didn't mess with them. They were, they were uh, more street fighter tough, you know, yeah. and they knew, knew, knew no fear. And Harley was one of those guys. So he drew well. Well, the match with Briscoe went off as planned in July of uh, 73. And hard to believe that's 50 years ago already. And I yeah. I remember it like it was the day before yesterday. Honestly, I was in awe. They came out with a big commemorative program for that night, July 24th. I think it's the 24th of July. Yeah. They had a, a booklet they put together, a, crowning a champion that was sold later on. And it, they took highlights of the match between him and Jack Briscoe. And the other unique thing about that night was that that was the night that Harley raced before the match with Briscoe started. Harley was introduced as NWA champion, and he had the old NWA belt on, and they had created a new belt, the wider strap. And Muchnick and Harley did the exchange in the ring. Harley got to pose with it. But he never left the ring with it that night. And Jack was the official first champion yeah. to wear that belt. Um, but there's that commemorative book. If you can find a copy, I, I think on eBay I've seen them go for some crazy prices. But yeah, probably. Uh... <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, uh, Briscoe became the champ, and 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 Jack did really well for the next yeah. two years. And again, he was a champion, Brian, that as good as he was all over, and again, very good at playing the heel when he needed to. Not really a hard, hardcore heel, but a guy that could yeah. break the rules and make a babyface look good. And yeah. just enough to irritate the fans. And if he needed to be the baby, oh man, nobody was more popular or better if you had some bully against him. So after two years, he got tired. And Jack, uh, it, it's interesting because I sat with Jack Briscoe um, at Cauliflower Alley, we we actually sat at the bar one night, right mm-hmm. at the bar, me and Jack, and we were there about an hour and a half, two hours. And uh, Jack told me, he said, you know, I was on the road. And he said, I, by the end of the two years, he said, I almost thought about just leaving the business. It was, wow. it had just gotten to be so much. He said, I was so done with not knowing where I am. And just being on a plane and getting off of a plane all the time. So two years in. Now, here's an irony for you. When he lost the title, he lost it to Terry Funk. Now, it's interesting that Dory wouldn't lose to Jack. But Jack (laughs) was willing to put Terry over. Yeah. And he did. But then again, the feuds between the feud between the Briscoe and Jerry Briscoe, younger brother Jerry Briscoe, was involved in this at times. The Briscoes mm. versus the Funks in various combinations. It made for good, good promoting. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Terry, that's when uh, maybe was the first indication that things were getting a little bit goofy. And okay. I say that only because Terry was a hell of a good wrestler. And God bless him. He just recently passed away this year. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so we lost a great wrestler and a great, uh, great uh, champion, but yeah. his style was different than Dory's. He was a little bit more the wild man. He was a little bit looser cannon. If you want to call him that he could get a little crazy in his interviews and, and uh, it worked back in 77 yeah. era, but he ended up dropping it to Harley race. Harley race. And the reason yeah. race yeah. got it back. And this is a true story. Um, when when Race lost to Briscoe four years earlier, uh, they basically told Race, "You will be back as champion." They were, and as I told you, they were happy with that two month stint that he had. And yeah. probably in hindsight, if they hadn't decided to go with Jack, you know, who knows? Maybe Harley could have carried it longer, and we don't yeah. know how that would have changed history, but. Um, they stuck with their program, went with Briscoe, which was what they wanted to do. But Harley was rewarded with number two. And uh, 
you know, that's when we start getting goofy, 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 because now the NWA formula was changing. Yeah. No longer was it two and three years or a four-year champion. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. Harley was champ. I want to ask you about Tommy Rich. Okay. I almost forgot about him. Yeah. yeah, he was a coffee break, literally, cup of coffee. But why only five days? Was there a ration and reasoning, or was it just a – I've never been able to find a reason why Tommy Rich was world champion for five days. There, He wasn't injured, nothing wrong with him. Five days. Do you have some insight on that, George? Well, I'll give you the, I'll give you, I don't know if it's insight. I'll give you the probable rationale. Okay. Um, It wasn't out of the ordinary for world champions, even. uh, Let's go switch over to the AWA for a second. In the early 60s, there were some Omaha title changes right one of them involved fritz von eric now that's that's a recognized title change by the awa and it's in the history but it was only for a two-week period and the Mm -hmm. deal was is Vern was doing fritz a favor they were friends Mm -hmm. uh fritz was big down in texas yeah and he agreed to put the title on him. Vern lost the title to him in Omaha. They had a rematch down in Amarillo where Fritz is the champion and Vern took it back down there. Okay. So the, for lack of a better reason, it was to build a rematch to okay. bring attention to it. Now, when you talk about the Tommy Rich thing in the NWA, let's back up a little bit and talk okay. about Harley race. Yeah. Harley has been touted, and even he himself said this, he has been touted as being an eight-time NWA champion. That's correct, yeah. Officially, I remember when he got to six, and they made a big deal of it that he had tied Luthez. Now, I'm going to yeah. back up a little bit more real quick, just, just quick. Luthez okay. was always the one that he had the most title reigns. He was a six-time NWA champion. Now, yeah. if you go back to what I started with when we started talking, he was three times national association champions, and yeah. then he held the alliance championship three times. Okay. So technically, yeah. he really was the alliance champion only three times because <laughs> that yeah. was a different organization. But different, they, yeah. yeah, they put them together. And yeah. it, that's the history. It is what it is. So with yeah. Harley Race, Harley went to Japan. Um, oh, I don't remember the years. He went to Japan and, you know, the wrestlers would go over there on their tours and Harley as champion would go over there and spend two weeks mm-hmm. defending the title to a couple of challenge. Usually in those days, in the late 70s, it was Giant Baba, Shohei Baba. And he was the challenger. Well, they actually gave the title to Baba for Mm -hmm. one week in Japan. Harley won it back. Well, there's number seven, folks. And then a year later, they actually did the same thing. He lost it to Baba and won it back a week later, give or take. So Baba gets credit for being a two-time champion, but total time champion two weeks. Yeah. You know, both times. Yeah. So with the Tommy Rich thing, uh, there's varying opinions, and it gets down. If, if if I've talked to fans that were just hardcore yeah. Tommy Rich fans, oh my God, Tommy yeah. Rich was the god. He was this. Yeah, he was a good worker, but yeah. it never does any good, Brian, to sit there and talk to a wrestling fan. If you know, if you said, "Well, who's your favorite wrestler and who should be on the Mount Rushmore?" Well, those Tommy Rich fans are going to say Tommy Rich. Well, mm-hmm. for what? You know, yeah. I mean. The truth of the matter was, is that even though Tommy Rich was a decent draw as a babyface, yeah, he wasn't the best draw. So yeah. they came up with the idea, we're going to come in and we're going to have Harley put him over. 
and Tommy Rich would be champion, that boosts Tommy yeah. Rich. A week later, yeah, he drops it back, but he can forever claim to be world champion. And for yeah. the next year or two or three, whatever Rich had left of his career, however long he wrestled, yeah, he had that, I was the world champion. And then the fans, you know, they believe that he did it once, he can do it again. Yeah. So all those subsequent rematches. That's the best answer I can give you. Okay. And it, it, promoters did this type of thing all the time. Look yeah. at Dusty Rhodes. That's what I was Dusty just going to bring up. Dusty Rhodes. Um, I was just so going to bring him up next. I was reading Read my mind. mind. Yeah. Um, Dusty Rhodes gets credit for being a tour three-time NWA champion, but they too were, yeah. as you defined it earlier, coffee break champions. It was yeah. all, and did Dusty need any, any help getting fans to the arenas? Not necessarily, no. but it was that one little piece that Dusty wanted and the promoters that worked with Dusty wanted, if we can add world champion to it. You know, that yeah. son of a plumber was going to be that much more of a draw. Yeah. And he was. So yeah. it, it all worked. And yeah. that's why, but in those latter years, from about 78 on, yeah, we had the title changing, you know, with Flair getting his first time and losing yeah. it and Flair coming back, Dusty yeah. getting it, losing it. Race had one more rain in there. And it started changing. By the time we got to the, uh, uh, I guess it was late, just late to mid to later 80s, WCW. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was at the early 90s. I started to fade away by then. But the yeah. w, WCW actually pulled away from the yeah. NWA. Yeah. And the only then we had ahead. guys, you want to talk about sort of coffee break champions, mm -hmm. um, Ronnie Garvin. Again, you read my mind. I was just going to bring him up next. <laughs> Ronnie Garvin. When, when when I heard back then that Ronnie Garvin became NWA champion, I went, yeah. what? Now, Ronnie, yeah. he just, he never had a push as, as the top challenger anywhere, though he was yeah. a good draw and a great wrestler. Let's give him his yeah. due. Yeah, yeah. But was he the flag bearer? No, it was a coffee break. How about Ricky Steamboat? Ricky Steamboat had the title. <laughs> for our yeah. coffee break. And yeah. it was against Ric Flair. I mean, yeah. it was two buddies putting each other over because they came, you yeah. know, they both came out of Vern's uh, barn camp. Yeah. yeah. And then you had, then after the NW, well, you know, do you remember? I think it was, I want to say it was 90 or 91 when Ric Flair went to the WWF. Yeah. And that was the, that was the years when he was holding the belt, but they were, Luring yeah, it out. pixels on it. Yeah, pixels. Yeah, yeah. yeah pixeling it. And yeah. then, and then Flair signed with the WWF, and the NWA yeah. made the announcement: "We have stripped Ric Flair of the championship." They had a tournament, and uh, boy, I got to use my imagination here. Uh, Cho Chomo, what the heck? Uh, Japanese guy. Masahiro Chomo, something like that, was a Japanese wrestler. He was he had supposedly mm -hmm. won a tournament and was now the NWA champion. Mm -hmm. And then a little bit down the road, we had the great Muta, was yeah. the NWA champion. And then Barry Windham got yeah. it for a few days, yeah. whatever. Um, yeah. I'm not sure on this one. I don't. I can't remember if Lex Luger had it or not, or if he Lex was Luger, Did Ron Luger Simmons. Yeah. Ron Simmons had it for a little while. And then, was and then when of, Flair came back, breaks. then when Flair came back, he even had another run with it after his WWF initial yeah. venture. Yeah. So, but here's the whole thing with the NWA. For the let's just say four decades or three and a half to four decades that it was in existence, mm -hmm. it was the most respected. Mm-hmm. Uh, if anybody asked you, even, you know, we'd go to the newsstand and buy the newsstand magazine. Well, in those magazines published in New York, Bruno San Martino was yeah. the world champion. But yeah. you ask anybody around the country, generally yeah. speaking, they recognize the NWA. That's over Vern's title and everything. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. PAWA. It was a very yeah. respected organization. They continued to have their annual meetings. I will point out to you that at these annual meetings, uh, Vern Gagne and Wally Carbo never dropped their membership in the NWA. Yep. Yep. Even when Vern had the AWA running for three decades. And he and Wally or one or the other would attend the meetings. And they had a vote who could be. Um, and I will tell you that uh, uh, it was Vern Gagne who voted for Briscoe back in the day. All right. So, which See, which is weird that. because you say, well, why wouldn't Vern bring Briscoe in to the AWA being a wrestler? But then we know the answer to that. Vern was never going to let anybody that possibly could appear to be more popular than he was. He yeah. wanted to be the only babyface champion. Yeah. There, and, and as sad as that is, and I don't even know if we talked to Greg, if Greg would agree, Greg Gagne, if he'd agree with that. Yeah. But that's fact. Yeah. Vern did not put the title on other baby faces because he didn't want anyone to be perceived as more popular than, or maybe really was more popular. Than he was. Yeah. That's part of the reason, too, that Hogan never got it, aside from yeah. the other real reasons we talked about. Right. But wow. there you go. All right, great insight on the NWA. I am, George, always such a pleasure to have you on, sir. Uh, I, yeah, I always learn something. And, and I learned something today. I didn't know the Vern Gagne voted for Briscoe. That's, I never knew that. So I'm sure maybe, maybe probably a lot of people that are listening to this didn't know it either. But ladies and gentlemen, my good friend, tag team partner, Mr. George Shire, thanks for coming on today, sir. Really appreciate it. I always have fun. I always enjoy your show. I've got, you, you know, Brian, I, I do your show, and I've got uh, two or three other podcasts that I've been yes. kind of semi-doing regularly. Yeah. And uh, if uh, just great bunch of guys I'm working with, and you specifically, yeah. um, I value your friendship very, very much. Well, and vice versa, I'll be with you. Ladies and gentlemen, George Shire. Folks, if you're watching, thank you. If you're listening, thank you. And if you haven't subscribed, please do so, and we will talk to you soon. Hey, this is Total Package, Lex Luger. You're listening to the VOC Nation. Don't miss out. VOC Nation's own Stro Maestro suffered a major medical and financial catastrophe this year. From the VOC Nation family, to all of you, please continue to pray for Stro Maestro for his continued recovery. You can also donate to his cause, paypal.me slash The worldwide leader in entertainment. This is the VOC Nation Radio Network. Check out In The Room every Tuesday night at 9. Listen in. Pro Wrestling Illustrated's Brady Hicks, former WCW star Stro Maestro, Kathy Fitz, Matt Grimm. And you and Ray are there too, right Ray? We sure are, and we've got great guests like Lex Luger, AJ Styles, Taku, and more. It's a heck of a party. Plus, I didn't get thrown off uh, buildings. And then uh, pregnant. I didn't get pregnant either. Sometimes I think it gets so ridiculous. We were getting into, like, snuff film territory there. In the room. 9 p.m. Eastern on VOC Nation. Yo, this is Jerry Stein of the Nasty Boys. Yeah, Brian Knobs here. You get ready to get nasty? Well, listen to the VOC Nation, baby. VOC Nation is one of the longest-running wrestling podcast networks. Having started way back in 2010, VOC Nation provides daily streaming shows where fans have the ability to interact with their hosts, and guests via phone calls, emails, and Twitter. VOC Nation hosts will include former backstage interviewer from both AWA and WWE, Ken Resnick, former WCW performer The Maestro, former Impact performer Wes Crisco, Pro Wrestling Illustrated contributor Brady Hicks, and former Philadelphia radio personality Bruce Works. Archive-free content includes past interviews with huge names like Hulk Hogan, Jesse Ventura, Kurt Angle, Jimmy Hart, Ricky Steamboat, Sting, Nick Foley, Joey Styles, Howard Finkel, and so many more. Listen live at VOCNation.com and subscribe to all the podcasts by searching VOC Nation Radio Network on your favorite podcast app. And be sure to follow these guys on Twitter at VOC Nation.
Phil After has been in the pro wrestling business for over 50 years. Hey, talking here with uh, Arn Anderson. Arn, first of all, your height and weight. 6'1", 255. And now subscribers to VOC Nation Premium get exclusive access to Bill After's archived audio footage. And uh, where's your hometown? Minneapolis, Minnesota. Okay, and uh, give us something about your back. First of all, your relationship to Ole Anderson. Ole is my Subscription to VOC Nation Premium starts at just $3 a month and includes commercial-free audio and video versions of our top podcasts. Okay, we're speaking here with uh, the manager of the <coughs> World Heavyweight Tag Team Champions, Tarzan Tyler and Luke Graham, and he's, uh, he's sort of glowing tonight about a new prospect we haven't heard of yet. And for just $9 a month, Aptor's archives are all yours. Uh, would you tell us who this new prospect is? Well, I'll is? tell you, Bill, I've searched the world, and I finally <laughs> found the true world champion. I finally found... What's your opinion of uh, Ivan Koloff winning the title from Bruno San Martino? Well, I think... Uh, I don't know what to say, but I, I want to say one thing. Uh, Bruno was a hell of a champion. You know? Hear exclusive interviews with the greatest performers of all time. This is Bill Actor, and once again, we're speaking here with... Bruno San Martino. Bruno, first of all, how did you and Bruiser lose that title to the Valiants? Well, actually, it, it was a, a, a very unusual loss, if you want to call it a did loss. Did didn't have anything to do with Well, yes, but the whole thing is that the rules, as I always understood them, was that you, the title could only be lost by pin or, or submission, which is the same rules as uh, my title, the World War Wrestling Federation. That night, uh, it was... To sign up, it's very simple. Head to premium.vocnation.com or go to patreon.com slash vocnation. VOC Nation takes you behind the scenes of the greatest moments in pro wrestling history. Each and every Thursday night, check it out. WCW star Stro Maestro takes you on a journey. It's WCW Retro. Talking old school match of the week. Talking dream matches. Taking your calls and looking back on an incredible career of acting, entertaining, and wrestling. Check it out, vocnation.com, WCW Retro. Be sure to call in Thursday nights, 9 Eastern, on the VOC Nation Radio Network. This is Matt Hardy, and you are listening to the VOC Nation.